Hi, uh, this is Lucia Rubinelli and I'm a junior research fellow at Cambridge. And today I'm going to interview Julia Nichols, who's lecturer in French and European studies at King's College London, and who is the author of a new book that came out very recently in Ideas in Context for Cambridge University Press, uh, and which is titled Revolutionary Thought After the Paris Commune, 1871-1885. So welcome, Julia. Uh, can you tell Thank me you. what led you to write this book? Um, so I've actually, I guess, been uh, kind of working on this topic or a kind of adjacent topic for quite a long time, almost for uh, 10 years since I was doing my undergraduate dissertation. Um, so I suppose I'd always been interested in French history when I was uh, an undergraduate. Um, and I started around that time reading a lot about the Paris Commune and there was all this uh, kind of, or the, the, the main thing that I remember reading was that this, uh, this was a kind of huge break in history. You know, uh, Francois Furet said that it's in the burning Paris of the Commune that the, the French Revolution said its goodbyes to history. Um, and so I'd always read about it in that kind of context. Um, and uh, the kind of the revolutionaries or the commune are just kind of going away afterwards. That this was a disaster for them. They all got killed or they all got sent somewhere else. Um, and so I suppose I was interested in that. And then I kind of started um, digging around, uh, thinking about that. And I thought, well, it, it can't be true that just everybody goes away. And, and that's kind of it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I suppose I was, was thinking about that. And then uh, when I was reading the sources, uh, it just didn't really seem to be the case that that was what had happened. So that's kind of, and that's what became the central thesis of the book ultimately as well, that, you know, that um, 1871 and the Paris Commune wasn't this kind of huge break in history after which everything changed, um, that actually revolutionaries, French revolutionaries who were involved in the Commune or kind of adjacent to the Commune um, actually remained quite politically active afterwards in the years immediately afterwards um and they tried kind of relatively successfully actually to re-establish themselves in french politics or to re-establish a kind of viable revolutionary position um in french politics and society right so as you said this is the main thesis of the book, and that's also clear from the title, right? So, revolutionary thought after the Paris Commune. Yeah. Uh, but could you uh, give us an outline of how you go about argue, arguing or making this argument in the book? Sort of what is the structure of the book and how does the argument unfold? Hmm. So, um, well, the book is divided in, I mean, it's divided into eight chapters, which are kind of sort of in four parts, um, and it's structured around um, things that uh, revolutionaries were talking about a lot in the period after the Commune, in the 1870s and the 1880s, or kinds of, or um, situations that they encountered that were very meaningful for them. So. 
um, the first part of the book deals with the Paris Commune itself. So kind of what happened during the Paris Commune um, and also how revolutionaries afterwards dealt with the memory of the Commune and the failure of the Commune um, and how they tried to, or the different ways in which they tried to incorporate that into their writing. Um, and then I also look at ideas of revolution um, so what happened to that after uh, 1871? And it's, you know, it's fair to say that after 1871, a kind of a violent revolution in the manner of 1848 or even seven, or 1789 or even 1830 is not, is not possible anymore. It's not really a viable political option uh, or a moral option for revolutionaries. Um, it's not uh, it's it's not seen as legitimate by people to uh, revolt against, uh, from the 1870s at least, a kind of an actively reforming republic. So the second part of the book looks at how they try to deal with that. And so um, revolutionaries in this period, revolutionary activists, their interactions with ideas of the French past and the French revolutionary tradition. Um, and also their attempts to, to kind of define revolution in different terms, to redefine it as either um, a kind of a religious event or something that's part of natural history and a cycle of evolution and revolution. Um, to make revolution something that was, uh, you know, attractive to people. Um, and then in that, I also look at kind of their, their links, uh, revolutionary activists links in the 1870s and the 1880s, their kind of intellectual and linguistic links with revolutionaries in 1848 um, and the 1850s and 1860s um, and the similarities uh, in ways that they talked about revolution. Um, then the third part uh, deals with Marx Karl Marx and Marxism and those kinds of ideas um, and the sort of international socialist context, because this is obviously um, the kind of period of the first international, um, the International Working Men's Association, which was established in 1864 and um, sort of imploded, imploded in uh, 1872 uh, with communal involvement, actually. Um, so the third part looks at that kind of uh, context and that kind of atmosphere through the lens of Marx and Marxism and how uh, revolutionaries uh, interacted with Marx and how they used his ideas to discuss other kinds of social problems. And then the final part um, looks at empire and international questions. So after uh, the commune, four and a half thousand communards who were um, arrested at the end of the commune and then convicted uh, of having been a part of it were deported to New Caledonia, uh, which is a kind of a small island in the South Pacific. And lots of other communards who managed to uh, escape arrest uh, or being killed in the final week of the commune. Uh, they, they all had to leave France, essentially. So they went to kind of, were scattered across different parts of the world. Um, and so the final part looks at um, how uh, revolutionaries interacted with these kinds of questions. Um, 
And what I argue is that actually the revolutionaries who experienced empire themselves in New Caledonia were not particularly interested in, in ideas of empire. Um, but those who remained in Europe were, and they wrote about them quite extensively. And that this is important, that this isn't just a kind of peripheral concern, but that um, it's important for understanding their thought as a whole, because it shows us the kind of limits um, and boundaries of the kinds of things that they were arguing for and their conceptions of things like uh, liberty or equality. Um, or solidarity. So I suppose the book, yes, the book is in four parts and each part kind of radiates out to a slightly wider context. So you start in Paris in the first part and then move to France in the second part, to Europe in the third part, and then to other places in the world in the fourth part. Which is a very nice way of building, <laughs> um, of building a book and an argument. Um, so I guess the question I have is whether you found anything especially surprising when writing the book and when doing the research for the book? Is there something that you found counterintuitive or that um, made you change your um, initial hypothesis about the main mm. argument of the book? Mm. Um, well, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, practically, uh, in terms of actually doing the research, I found things not necessarily surprising, but quite challenging. Um, like you would think that um, for a subject like this, where you're dealing with quite a lot of people who've written and quite a lot of newspapers and things, it would be quite easy to find sources. But I actually found it very difficult to find them, or not very difficult, but quite difficult to find them. There's no kind of a uh, single one collection where everything is, where you can go and look. So I had to look in lots of different places. Um, the closest to a, a kind of complete collection or a comprehensive collection is actually in Amsterdam at the International Institute for Social History. Um, and also just a lot of the sources are kind of um, in really bad condition. Uh, the newspapers and things that were printed during the commune, they were printed on really bad paper, and so the paper is deteriorating. They've sat on shelves for hundreds of years. Um, and so that was very difficult. Um, intellectually or kind of thematic, I did find things surprising because I suppose I came to uh, the project or I approached it with a certain idea or certain ideas of what I would find and then I didn't necessarily find those things. So I think I thought that, for instance, revolutionaries who've been deported to New Caledonia would have lots of things to say about empire and they would be kind of, uh, you know, putative, like anti-colonial activists and that was just really not what I found. Um, or I thought that revolutionaries who are writing after the Paris Commune would be really obsessed with the French Revolution. Um, and they would talk about revolution only in those kinds of terms. Um, and I didn't find that either. So those things were kind of challenging, working through that um, and working out what they were trying to say. Um, and then I suppose the thing that I found most um, surprising, which I struggled with for a long time, was that I thought that the revolutionaries I was looking at would have a really comprehensive uh, kind of thesis of what an alternative republic should look like. 
um, that like they didn't like the Third Republic and they're always criticizing these politicians. Um, and so they would have kind of written down somewhere something that was quite comprehensive. Um, and I thought for a long time that, you know, I had to have a chapter about this or I had to have a section about this, like where they talk about republics and their ideas on republics. And actually, I just didn't I didn't really find that. Um, and I think or the, the conclusion that I came to was that perhaps there wasn't that because they were actually closer to the politicians of the Third Republic than I initially thought that they were. Um, that there were obviously things they disliked about the Third Republic and the things that they disliked about uh, the people who ran the Third Republic or the people who were in the, kind of, the chamber or in politics during the Third Republic, but they didn't want to completely tear it down and start something completely different. Like, they actually kind of... Um, there were many ways in which they were close to these people. Um, and there were lots of ways in which their ideas were similar. Like they also wanted to have a kind of universal secular education system. Um, they were also anti-clerical. They also wanted uh, a republic. Um, and that perhaps they, they actually recognized the value of having achieved those things. Um, and perhaps that was the reason why they didn't have such a kind of a clearly laid out plan for a different republic. Okay, thank you. And so, what? So you've clearly given us an overview of what the main argument is, and also in just this last few minutes, when you discuss what you found surprising at an intellectual level, it was very interesting because, of course, the the stuff you found surprising are also the, I guess, the 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 aspects of the book that are more in, more interesting and more again uh, that advance our knowledge by showing that things that we would assume were worked in a certain way, they didn't. Um, but more broadly, what do you think will be the impact of the book? What, what do you think people will find interesting about the book? Uh, um, that's a good question. I don't, I don't want to speak for people about what they find interesting or not. Um, I hope that people find it interesting. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting about it for me is that, uh, and, and slightly surprising is that this, I think, is really the kind of first uh, attempt to give a kind of comprehensive account of revolutionary thought after the Paris Commune in those kinds of years. So um, there, are, there's obviously a lot of literature on subjects surrounding these kinds of things. Um, so there are books that deal with, say, the socialist movement from 1870 to 1914 or uh, the 1930s. Uh, there are books that deal with the French Revolutionary Movement that usually go from 1789 to 1871. Um, there are intellectual biographies of people who've been involved uh, in these kinds of events or people that I'm writing about, like Paul Lafargue, uh, who was um, Marx's son-in-law and the first socialist deputy uh, elected in France. But all that deal with kind of specific intellectual groupings or political groupings, but not something that tries to knit all of those things together. Um, so I think there hasn't really been a sense of how all of those people fit together 
and what exactly they thought. Um, if you take something like a kind of a very, or a, a kind of longer jury thing that goes from 1870 to 1914, I think that often this period is kind of, uh, it's seen as, uh, it is skipped over a bit, or it's seen as like a, um, a stepping stone to something else. So I wanted to kind of really treat it on its own terms um, and think about what they were trying to do. And I think that's significant, not only for our understanding of this period, um, which perhaps we haven't understood fully before or thought about fully before, um, but it's significant for other things as well. So it's significant for um, thinking about, you know, the history of socialist ideas and what came afterwards. How are we to properly understand what happens in the 1890s or uh, the beginning of the 20th century if we don't properly understand where it's coming from and why, the, why people are thinking those things or speaking in those terms? Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's also important for things like the history of uh, French republicanism more generally as well, um, that gives a kind of different idea of the founding years of the Third Republic, which is a kind of a really significant uh, constitutional regime in French history. It's the longest lasting constitutional regime since uh, the Ancien Regime. Um, and then I guess, I mean, kind of uh, the way that we think about modern European history as well, that um, a kind of certain idea of revolution is very central to that. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to re-examine where that comes from and the intellectual production of that. So hopefully uh, that will be interesting to people as well. Oh, I'm sure it will. And last question before I let you go. Um, what is your next project? And is it connected to this first one? Um, yes. So my next project is about comparisons between slavery and wage labor um, in French thought between roughly kind of 1830 and 1917. Um, so lots of kind of philosophers and journalists and politicians of various different kind of stripes use this comparison um, for different reasons, comparing slaves who are kind of uh, suffering in plantations with wage slaves who are toiling away in European factories. Um, and so, uh, yes, I want to, it's going to be, although I'm only just starting it, uh, a kind of uh, a look at the history of that comparison um, and what people are trying to say when they use that comparison uh, and using that to rethink how we think about kind of the idea of like freedom and equality in France in the 19th century. Um, and yes, it did come out of uh, the previous project actually, the idea came from, uh, I was reading, I think it was um, an abridged version, an abridged French translation of Das Kapital that was published in the 1880s. And there was a really, there's a really long introduction to it by uh, a French Marxist. Um, and he was talking about um, how, you know, machinery can actually be liberating. And it's a really good thing because previously in history, we've never been able to have um, 
everybody in the world be free because some people have always been working for others, but with machinery, which are called iron slaves. So with these iron slaves, the freedom of everybody becomes possible. And I suppose that I, that's what started me thinking about it. That I was interested in the fact that he was using this kinds of language to talk about technology and machinery um, and freedom um, and what that might mean for how they thought about different people um, and yeah what it meant what it might mean that they thought about freedom or how they conceptualize freedom okay thank you very much julia for this uh, discussion and overview of your new book titled revolutionary thought after the paris commune 1871 1885 thank you